Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Today we are joined by Dr. Zhang Wan Son, Associate Professor at the Barlett School of Planning at University College London. His research focuses on urban technical knowledge production and political analysis of economic planning. Dr. Sun's expertise is largely focused on America, China and South Korea, and he will shortly be publishing a paper on the South Korean strategy for controlling COVID-19, which dramatically differs from the current UK response. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Sun. Uh, thank you very much for invitation. This is a great opportunity for me to share my views with listeners of this uh, podcast. We're delighted that you're joining us today. Can we start by asking what research you're currently doing at the moment? Um, yes, my research is uh, roughly about the interaction between technology and urban space. And I rely upon theories from economic geography and the political geography. Recently, I've been um, writing papers about spatial distribution of innovations using U.S. patent data. And, and I'm also looking at smart city initiatives in various countries in South Korea and China and Vietnam and other places. I have recently published uh, an article about uh, use of smart city technology in pandemic and which, is, which led me to this podcast. That article was a fascinating read as it raises issues about technology and, as you said, innovation in smart cities to tackle things like COVID-19. Can I ask, as the current lockdown persists in the UK, how does it differ from South Korea? Currently, it's it's very different. South Korea is one of the few countries that successfully avoided lockdown. It could be achieved because the Center for Disease Control aggressively find the potential patients and tested them from the early stage. Uh, Death per one million is five in South Korea, while the death of United Kingdom is over 276, and United in United States it's 152. So because of this um, impressive achievement by Center for Disease Control. Uh, it's pretty much everything is is open now. Shops are open, restaurants are open, coffee shops open, and other businesses have been all open. But schools and universities rely upon online teaching, and the mass gathering is banned. Uh, but other other businesses are as normal. But obviously, the number of consumers are down because people are following social distance distancing instructions. That's a huge difference between five and 276 deaths per million. Uh, You wrote recently um, that South Korea can produce 10,000 test kits and conducts 20,000 tests per day in South Korea. Um, Why is it that the UK struggles to match that level of mobilization? I guess um, South Korea was ready uh, because of its experience in various epidemic in 2015. It really gave South Korea important lessons. I mean, the, uh, one of the biggest mistakes at that time was the attempt to deal with 
the pandemic within government and expert circle. So the lack of information had two serious consequences. I mean, firstly, the potential patients did not realize they were in danger. So they visited many hospitals, contaminating hospitals. And some hospitals were not well instructed, so they made mistakes and become hotspots of infections. So, so they said there were only 37 deaths due to MERS, but it was a shock to Koreans because South Korea was the only one country outside the Middle East that was hit by MERS. And After MERS that, was an infection, a virus, in 2012 that originated from the Middle East. Is that right? It, it, it is right, but it affected South Korea in 2015. So after this mistake, um, the Center for Disease Control was expanded and was given more discretionary power. One of the important changes was that the new law that allows Minister of Health and Welfare can declare health emergency. When the emergency is declared, the Center for Disease Control is allowed to request necessary data to bank and the mobile network provider through police. These data were proven extremely useful in patient tracing in COVID-19 pandemic this time. It's also been reported that there's been a decentralization of testing and different regions and areas around South Korea um, have been given greater powers and autonomy to test unlike the UK. Is that correct? Actually, I'm not sure about it. The guideline was from the Center for Disease Control, and there is a national network of hospitals, district hospitals, that are doing most of the tests. So I'm, I'm not sure what kind of decentralization you are referring to. I learned in a recent podcast that to paraphrase, South Korea has specialized in testing, Singapore in pandemic medical centers, which were built post-SARS in 2003. Taiwan has combined national healthcare and immigration databases to generate alerts. And China has obviously controlled COVID-19 with a lockdown. Is there any right way of responding to this pandemic? Well, this is a difficult question because all of these are very important. But if I may respond in a slightly different way, I would like to emphasize two things. The firstly, it is beside the point to criticize patient tracing as undemocratic. It is undemocratic for sure, but we have to consider what is the alternative. Privacy is important and data protection is important. But mobility is one of the most important human rights as well. If certain level of patient tracing can prevent lockdown, I won't hesitate to say patient tracing is better. And this is out of my frustration uh, in recent interviews with several newspapers and the TVs. I mean, after publication of a short article in conversation.com, I was asked to participate in, uh, in interviews by Al Jazeera and the German DWTVs and newspapers from Brazil, Denmark, and, and United States and a few other places. And they always tend to assume that have the dichotomy between surveillance and the democracy and the connect patient tracing with surveillance, which is partially true, 
But the choice between democracy and the surveillance was not given to us. The choice that is in front of us is between patient surveillance and lockdown. Patient tracing seems to be working better. And that dichotomy has been forced upon us, of course. Yes. Neither of these two choices are democratic, but if you have to choose lesser of the two evils, I think this is surveillance, at least at this time. Generally speaking, then, is it the case that a country simply has to experience a pandemic to learn best how to tackle it the next time? I understand that Singapore suffered also from H1N1 swine flu in 2009. We've already talked about uh, SARS in 2003 and MERS in 2012 from the Middle East. Has that just meant that South Korea and Singapore and other Southeast Asian countries are better at dealing with pandemics because they've experienced them already? I think recent experience really matters. I mean, we have, we have a scientific understanding of a pandemic, and we also know history of a Spanish flu and other pandemics. But science and history over the past seems to have a limit in persuading political leaders and the people. When people actually see what can happen, people can actually feel what is at stake here and what should be done. And, and, and South Korea, Taiwan, and, and Singapore have recently seen what can happen. So they were ready for COVID-19 situations. It's just like a weaker version of a pathogen can serve as a vaccine. Recent experience of a pandemic seems to serve as a kind of a social vaccine, if you will. There has been attempts by various journalists to explain South Korea's and Taiwan's success to uh, cultural and historical factors such as Confucianism, collectivism, and experience of a dictatorship. None of these hold against evidences. If East Asian culture is good in dealing with pandemic, why mainland China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong had to suffer from SARS and South Korea from MERS earlier? And why is Japan doing horribly this time? So apparently, shared culture of East Asia doesn't seem to matter that much. And if Asian collectivism allows the government to use surveillance technology to patient tracing why British public once accepted the highest concentration of CCTVs when it was under attack from IRA, and why Americans accepted heightened surveillance after 911. I'm not saying cultural factors do not matter at all. I'm just saying that people are quite practical. When people see the need of something, people are willing to accept it quite quickly. And uh, cultural and historical factors seem to matter much less than people's perception of the need. There are so many thought-provoking issues and questions there. Can I start just by asking you, um, how do smart technologies feature uh, in the pandemic response in South Korea or in other countries that you have completed research in? I think I can categorize various use of smart technology into three groups. It's a tracing, monitoring, and information sharing. I'm first tracing. Tracing is to find the potential patient. It is a standard part of pandemic control. Uh, but before I get into the details, I would first like to emphasize the fact that none of the tracing technologies are uniquely Korean or East Asian. The same technology is available in all countries. 
And what distinguishes South Korea from the other is to, firstly, there is a law that specifies when and how health authority can use the technology. And the second, the density of infrastructure is, is much higher. So getting into the tracing technology, uh, in January and early February, the number of patients were in two digits. It was very small. But thousands of tests were conducted because all people who had contact with the confirmed patients were tested as well. Epidemiologists in, in the Center for Disease Control first interviewed the patient to find out potential contacts. And in most cases, interview is enough to find the contacts. However, in some cases, patients try to conceal their past mobility for various reasons. For example, if a member of a socially stigmatized organization, such as a religious cult, will try to hide their membership, and those in socially stigmatized job will try, try not to reveal their place of work. And in some other case, cases, patients simply don't have a clear memory of where they have been. So for these situations, Center for Disease Control or local government can request mobility data through police and the source of data is from the bank and the mobile network providers. And that is possible only when Minister of Health and Welfare declares health emergency, which is the case now. And epidemiologists get mobile phone location data from mobile network provider and the cash list transaction data from banks. Uh, mobile network provider always knows uh, where the phone is, even if the phone is not smartphone. I was asked by many journalists where uh, smartphone apps were used in tracing patients. Sometimes it is the case, but it doesn't have to be because a mobile phone is always connected to one, two, three transceivers uh, or mobile phone towers that is too closest to the phone. And the mobile phone company, by looking at which transceiver the phone is connected, the network provider keeps the record of the location. So the density of transceivers determines the accuracy of location record. South Korea has extremely dense distribution of transceivers. Uh, there are 860 transceivers in South Korea. Uh, UK has about 10% of that. I think people will be very shocked by, by some of those statements that your phone can be tracked. And as you said, in South Korea, the police, your mobile phone company or your bank are aware of where you are. Yeah, it is the case everywhere. Vodafone 3 and other mobile network provider in the UK knows exactly where the phone is. Any telephone company knows where the phone is all the time. But it is illegal for the police or any other government authority to access the data. And in, but, but they are usually allowed for criminal investigations only. In South Korean case, uh, the government allows the access to the, that data when the pandemic is declared. Which is why, of course, it's so important for that declaration. Yes. So because I mean, the specific condition for the declaration has to be really specified in the law. Otherwise, the minister or government can abuse its power. And the credit card transaction record can serve the similar purpose. Uh, 
uh, it's more than 95% of the transactions in South Korea is cashless, which is by far the highest in the world. This means the bank knows where this, where someone has been. If you go to coffee shop and pay with the credit card, obviously the bank knows where the transaction happens. The same case everywhere, everywhere in the world, uh, not just South Korea. But, but again, the access to the data is uh, by by the police or by other other entity is illegal. So only when the emergency is declared, Center for Disease Control gets access to the data. So these two data sources are kind of complementary because mobile phone location data are without interruption. Uh, but there are some margin of error. It can be up to 60 meters. And on, on the other hand, the cashless transaction record is with many interruptions because the bank knows only the point of, of a transactions. Between transactions, the bank doesn't know where you are. But the location of, of a transaction can be pinpointed by the bank. So these two can build a quite good map of the mobility of the patient. So once the epidemiologist gets the data, details are filled by interviews and the CCTV recordings. The data comes from high-tech sources, but the work process is quite labor-intensive because you have to manually combine this data set. And there was improvement in automation uh, in the quest of the data and the collection of the data on 15th of March, but analysis is still manual. And the second type of smart technology that is used in, in pandemic control is monitoring of the patient. So this is done mainly through mobile phone apps. And if you are a patient of a mild symptom, or if you had close contact with confirmed patient, or if you visited areas of outbreaks, you have to install two apps in South Korea. The first step is to report the symptoms to Ministry of Health. And the other is for the local government to track your location. So this is a GPS, this app has a GPS functionality so they can monitor where you are. Uh, so there was discussion in, in, in the government to introduce GPS bracelet that is currently used in Singapore and Taiwan, but it wasn't introduced in the end because public response was very negative about it. The third type of smart technology is used for information sharing. Uh, once epidemiologists finish the mapping of the patient's mobility, uh, that information is published in local government website and the phone apps. The data is anonymized, so the name of the patient is not revealed at all. Uh, this publication of, of patient mobility accomplished two purposes. One is to show the potential locations of a patient. And, and if you have been there at the same time with the patient, you can go to district hospital and get tested. And secondly, uh, so this publication of information ensures people that people are given all the information the government has, which gives a peace of mind. So this is kind of a lesson from the MERS pandemic from 2015, because at that time, uh, people panicked a lot, and which, which caused lots of problems. And this, there were uh, spread of false information about the pandemic and lots of conspiracy theories, which you occasionally see in the UK at the moment. And so that can be prevented by 
by uh, by publishing information. So not all information has a practical value, but it does serve psychological purposes. There was not much false news or conspiracy theory spread in South Korea at this time uh, because people trusted that the government is letting people know everything that they have. So to summarize, the, the three approaches that you've listed there um, of tracking, monitoring, and then sharing data, mm-hmm. um, are they described as spatio-temporal mapping? You mentioned that in some of your research. Yes, um, it is. The, the spatio-temporal mapping is a term coined by Swedish geographer Torstein Hegerstrand in the mid-1960s. As far as I know, epidemiologist does not use the term, but I used it because I wanted to explain patient tracing with a term that geographers are familiar with. At the moment, you're working towards a paper for Eurasian geography and economics, and you mentioned that South Koreans expect a paternalistic state. What do you mean by this, and how does that differ from the UK? Before I explain this, uh, I want you to know that um, the most important factor that explains the South Korean response is the experience, recent experience of marriage, and the paternalistic state is one of other factors that matters less. But the, the effect of a paternalistic state seems to be there. I guess it's a, it's about people expecting the government to do more. So there is a long tradition of uh, interventionist state in South Korea. In in the discussion of economic development, this term is is uh, it, it's called a developmental state. But what the term developmental state doesn't capture is that uh, the South Korean government is present not only in economic policy, but also in other areas in, in, in people's lives. This is related to recent changes of Korean public as a very demanding consumer. Uh, South Korean consumers are highly demanding. So if you go to McDonald's or any other fast food restaurants or department store, you see workers, service workers have an extremely subordinate attitude because consumers is considered the king. And, and people started to see the government as a service provider. So this combination of this tradition of interventionist state and, uh, and the recent high demanding consumer culture demands the state to be paternalistically take care of people doing a lot of things that other governments wouldn't do. So sometimes certain level of uh, privacy is sacrificed if people are expecting better service from the state. Some suggest social distancing and remote work is the future. Will cities survive or will they diminish in importance? It is difficult to say, but uh, it's, it's a bit too early to say, but what I can say is that this is not the first time when people predicted death of the cities and, 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 and the concentrations. When telegram was invented more than 100 years ago, uh, people were talking about death of the distance. So telegram shortened the distance, time distance between UK and the United States, and people thought they could migrate to United States very easily, which was partially true. Uh, 
And then uh, when telephone was invented, people said the same thing. And then when internet was in invented, again, people said the same thing. But cities grew and grew. So I, so my prediction, it's just my personal prediction, is, is that um, the cities will continue to grow. I can probably predict that remote work will increase. But that doesn't necessarily mean the death of the cities. I think remote work will, will make the cities grow even further. Uh, lower density that covers uh, bigger parts of the territory in a, in a, in a, in a country. That, that would be my prediction. People will still have to see each other uh, occasionally. So uh, distance still matters. But if you don't have to commute every day, uh, the commuting distance can be quite far. Perhaps two-hour distance is acceptable if you commute only once a week, but you still have to commute. So you cannot live um, in the mountains. So that is why I'm predicting expansion of city space with lower density, and which we already see in some part of the United States. Los Angeles is a, is a good example there. It's a low-density uh, low uh, urban space spread a territory that is, that is the size of half of England. And of course, in cities, you normally find innovation, creativity, and a high uptake of technology, which is what we've been talking about during this podcast. That's right. Finally, can I ask a stark and simple question, Dr. Sun? Um, you mentioned earlier on that GPS bands tracking your movements have been used in Taiwan and Singapore, but not in South Korea. And we've been discussing the balance between liberty and patient tracking. Uh, can you have democracy and surveillance? Any kind of surveillance is undemocratic. But what we can try is to make it less undemocratic by specifying the conditions of surveillances. I mean, currently, surveillance is unavoidable, it seems. Uh, Google, Facebook, and other big data companies already have our data. They use big data to make a huge profit and when those companies are making profit out of, uh, out of surveillance of us, it is difficult to legitimize to prevent the government to use it for security purposes. So avoiding surveillance does not seem to be the answer here. But we should still be very careful about allowing the government to use surveillance technology for security purposes because there can be abuse of the power and the surveillance technology always. So that is why it is important to, to create a legal framework that specifies this very specific conditions when the government can use it and how we can use it, etc. And that is the same reason why I am against the simple dichotomy between surveillance and the democracy. Because when we are stuck into that dichotomy, it is difficult to, to discuss about the specific conditions, when and how the government can use surveillance technology. I think we have to accept the fact that surveillance can be extremely useful in, in certain situations. And once we accept that, we can discuss how you can use it, how we can control the government, and how, how uh, you, we can use it more effectively and in a less undemocratic way. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really insightful and really important to be brought up to speed with technology and the evolving situation with COVID-19. Okay, thank you very much for letting me have an opportunity to, to share my views with the listeners of the podcast. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.